Welcome to the podcast about stories from the center of the universe. I'm Daniel Lance. I'm Paul Gilman, and this is Podzo One. Dan Crane is the director of Groups and Mobilization at One Race, an organization dedicated to addressing racism and racial division through faith in Atlanta and beyond. In our conversation, Dan tells us about his life, the path of his faith, his inspirations, and the work that he's doing with One Race. To find out more and to support Dan and One Race, head to oneracemovement.com. So here's Dan. Dan Crane, welcome to Podso One. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Dan, I w- I'm fascinated to hear a little bit about uh, growing up in Bumpville, Pennsylvania, what that's like. It sounds like it's not in the heart of Philly yeah. uh, or in the heart of Pittsburgh. It's somewhere no. in between, I'm guessing. Yeah, somewhere in between and directly north of both of those. So northeast from Pennsylvania, 10 minutes south of the New York border. So, wow. yeah, I grew up in Bumpville, Pennsylvania on a farm and uh, second of five boys. My my parents had five boys. My wow. mom. Um, was an amazing, is an amazing person. Uh, she passed away three and a half years ago. Um, so yeah, I grew up on a farm and I was probably the laziest farm boy you could find. I did not enjoy working on the farm. My dad had to, to, to pull his hair and pull my hair to get me to do anything. Um, you know, I had one, I had one rule during the summertime, on the farm said dan can you be can you be out to the barn by eight o'clock to feed the calves right eight o'clock doesn't seem that bad on a farm but continuously i couldn't do it i always slept in (laughs) i i just i I just struggled and i did not enjoy i enjoyed being on the farm i enjoyed being in the country playing in the woods all of those different things um great childhood grew up playing sports, um, all of that type of things. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that was my origin story. That's where I grew up, up in Bumpville, Pennsylvania on a farm. What, what's the uh, age range from the oldest to the youngest of the five? So I'm 43 now, Steve's 45, I'm 43, Jay's 41, Adam's 30, 37, um, and Tom is 33. And are, so two, two, three, and four. Are you, yeah. are you guys still tight? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we still, we have our differences, um, and uh, but yeah, we still talk on a regular basis, and um, yeah, we all we all love Jesus, and uh, we're all part of His, the Bride of Christ, and so yeah. Cool, and so you stayed in Bumpville until you graduated high school. Yeah, so I I, I um, grew up in, in a Christian home. My parents both both knew Jesus and were involved in the church, particularly my mom. <laughs> Um, I get a lot of my relationship with, with God um, from just the way my my influence of my mom. And um, <clears throat> I grew up playing basketball, soccer, lacrosse. I uh, was a terrible, um, uh, I was a uh, <clears throat> terrible, did terrible academically, terrible student in high school, barely graduated high school. And for some reason, I f- saw this flyer for Liberty University um, at in high school. And I said, Oh, that kind of looks cool. No clue what it, what it was. I saw it was a Christian school. So I applied to go to Liberty literally probably I think two months before I went to Liberty in August of, of 1996, I applied to go to school there. got accepted a month later. I'm in school. <laughs> and so, um, got accepted on academic probation because my grades coming out of high school were so bad. Um, but my freshman year, I started to really kind of apply myself and realize, Hey, if I, if I apply myself, I can actually do well academically. And, um, my sophomore year, I was dating a girl and uh, we dated for about three months and then she broke up with me and it really just kind of left me broken. Um, really depressed, discouraged. I had such an effect on me that I was ready to, to drop out of college and to go home. My parents said, you know, no, stay, you need to give this semester a chance. And so I did. Um, And that was the moment that Jesus became real, like really real. Um, As some friends of mine that had given me a workbook called Experiencing God. And I began to work through that and began to experience God, began to realize that he knew my name. He, He was alive. He was active in my life. And so this God that I grew up around became a very personal and, and deep God to me. And so um, from there, I just instantly started having a heart for other people, particularly youth. And I uh, changed my degree to biblical studies at Liberty. And everybody around me was like, what is happening in Dan's life? 
and it was Jesus. He was, he was literally changing my life. He was changing my affections. Um, I wasn't just so focused on myself. I began to be focused on other people. So I began to be a part of a, a ministry team that traveled on the weekends um, to evangelize, to share Jesus, um, began to be a leader there. Um, came to Atlanta to intern at a, at a large church here in Atlanta, Georgia, um, in the youth department, interned there, and then went as a, to be a youth pastor in Orlando, Florida in 2001. And um, I uh, was at that church for, for two and a half years and as a youth pastor and loved to be a youth pastor. The youth, youth group grew from about 15 kids to about 70, 75 kids and spanned about a year, year and a half. Um, and uh, met my wife at that time. My wife, Adrienne, is six and a half years younger than me. And she was not part of the youth group when I when we met. <laughs> I was I was 25 and she was um, 19 when we started dating, and so um, fell in love. We uh, got uh, got married, uh, but in the process of that time, in February of 2004, so 16 years ago, coming up on 16 years ago, um, I resigned from the church with two other pastors, and so three pastors on one Sunday. Um, resigned from the church. And oh. so Southern Baptist Church, that uh, just the church just fell apart. And there was a lot of people in the internal world, the, the deacons that controlled everything. And uh, just, I really, really was burned out. Um, I was bitter. I was mad at God. I was mad at the church. I really had felt like God had betrayed me and let, let, let me down. And, um, and so that whole year, other than getting married, was a really, really dark period of my time went through a lot of depression went through a lot of discouragement um just wasn't sure why why am i in orlando florida i'm an i'm a yankee i'm you know i didn't really like florida in the first place um and now i'm here it's too hot and there's too many bugs and um and so um that uh, we got married and then 2005 uh, <laughs> i moved my wife who grew up in orlando florida we moved from Orlando, Florida to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And so West Michigan, right? And so my wife married eight, nine months, moved her. She grew up in Florida. She's a Florida girl. She loves the beach, loves the sun, West Michigan, especially Grand Rapids. Like lake effect snow is what they live in six months of the year. And so that we were up there for four years. And um, while we were there, God really began to craft our hearts to what we're doing now. Uh, we were a part of a, um, a, a, a large white majority church up there called Mars Hill Bible Church. And uh, they were trying to, at that time, hey, is that dog bothering you? No, you're fine. No, okay. you're good. Um, yeah, we were part of a large white church and they were trying to move to God of the oppressed theology and recognition that if you read the scriptures, it's clear God always sides with those that are being on the margins. God always does. Um, rooted in Exodus 3, that God hears the cry of the Israelites. And so this idea that God hears the cry of those that are oppressed. And so what does that look like to to, to take a 10,000 white megachurch to, to, to move to God of the oppressed theology? And so they come up with different objectives around the world, around the nation, then around the city. And, um, and so they had a African-American pastor, Marvin Williams, come in and speak to the church and he spoke two Sundays and he spoke in Isaiah 58 of God's heart to loosen the chains of injustice. And pastor Marvin talked about his experience of being a black man in America and um, being called boy at a restaurant. And so for me, growing up as a white boy from Bumville, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like none of this makes sense. And so, but I really felt the Holy spirit say, this is what you're going to give your life to really no clue what that meant. Um, and I had breakfast with Marvin, Pastor Marvin afterwards, just asked him all sorts of questions. And he says, go read this book, go read that book. No clue what I was getting involved in. Um, I was in seminary at the time, and I changed my degree to Master's of Intercultural Ministries and knew God was calling us to, to, to live out this, wor this work and uh, began to be mentored by some leaders of color. Um, one in particular, Dr. Reggie Smith, who was an adjunct professor at the seminary and also was a pastor of inner city in inner city Grand Rapids, poured into me. I um, did a research paper on Ephesians 2 of God's heart to reconcile the Jews and the Gentiles as a result of being saved by grace. God reconciles the Jews and the Gentiles. And um, 
just immerse myself, got introduced to CCDA, which is Christian Community Development Association, John Perkins's work, um, read by a book called Divided by Faith, which reaches researches the churches, basically where, where what's the difference between the white and the black church around issues of race. Um, and then in 2008, we came and interned at a nonprofit here in Atlanta, Georgia, um, that was doing community development in underserved communities. And so the idea of community development is you, um, at the invitation of the neighbors, you come in and you basically begin to develop the community from the inside out. And so when you're dealing with housing disparities, you're doing a few food deserts, you're doing with youth mentorship, youth development, all sorts of things that are true of under-resourced communities, um, which is three miles south of Atlanta, of uh, the city, which I'm sitting in right now. It's called Historic South Atlanta. And so in 2008, my wife and I came at the invitation um, of the pastors here just to intern for a month. And so came with my oldest son and lived here for a month, loved it, just loved being in, in the minorities and majority minorities in a minority space. Right. And so um, went back to Michigan to graduate from seminary. They moved. They invited us to move back to this neighborhood. And I said, that sounds wonderful. Our hearts came alive. Um, by the way, how much do you plan on paying us to, to be a part of that work down there? <laughs> and they're like, well, there's really no money here. You got to go raise your own funds for that. And I'm like, well, hold on a second. So you want me to, to move into the hood with my young family, work at this small church and raise my own funds? <laughs> and I'm like, nah, I think I, I'm, I'm good. And uh, I uh, was really wrestling with God. I'm like, God, does this really, really want us to do this work? And um, August of 2008, uh, there was one night I went to bed and I said, God, if this is really of you, I need a dream. I want a vision. And I went to bed and uh, the next morning I woke up and I had a clear dream. And the dream that God gave me was that I was sitting on a set of bleachers with four young black men. I was just sitting. Um, I wasn't in a position of power. I wasn't teaching. I was just with, I was, I was really in a posture of learning. And so I'm like, all right, this is, this is it. And so we actually didn't move to Atlanta. We moved back to Orlando, Florida um, to be with, be back with my family. My wife's family lives there. Um, and this whole time I worked for FedEx. I was a courier for FedEx. Uh, so I get, got through seminary. That's so why I had been in income, insurance, all that. Um, moved back to Orlando, transferred with FedEx. Um, another dark period, another dark place in my life. Oh my God, what are you doing? Couldn't find a job or I couldn't find a ministry position. Couldn't find anything that really capture a heart for God's heart for reconciliation and justice. Um, really, Orlando is, was, was at the time, and somewhat still is, is really far behind around this, this conversation. And so, um, but by the grace of God, I, in a Bible study, I met a guy named Phil Hissom. That um, he had just graduated from Reformed Theological Seminary in, in Orlando. And he began to share about the research project that he was a part of, that he led. And it was called the Polis Project, and uh, Polis is the Greek word for city. And they basically researched the city of Orlando and why Orlando was not well. Um, on the well-being index, Orlando was continually falling, falling low at the bottom of, of major cities. And they're like, what's happening in, in Orlando that it's not well? And so Phil, while he was at seminary, led a research project researching that and discovered that Orlando had these pockets of poverty all around the city. And the way the church was meeting human need was just building dependency and self-sufficiencies. And what that meant by that is just giving handouts to people. You're not helping them at all. And then the opposite of that is just expecting them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps wasn't helping them at all because a lot of people don't even have bootstraps, right? So some people don't even have boots. And so that was perpetuating poverty in Orlando. And so they're like, okay, that's the problem. What's the best solution? And so that's where they landed on a concept called asset-based community development, uh, a posture developed up in Chicago and working with under-resourced communities where you work with key leaders in the neighborhood. You work around their key assets. What do they want for their neighborhood? And so that model didn't exist in Orlando at all. And so Polis Institute was launched in 2009 by Phil Hissom. And um, with all that research, he wrote a training called Dignity Serves um, and based it on the book of Philippians, where Paul talks about a relationship in verse 4, verse 15, of Philippians 4, verse 15, where he talks about giving 
and receiving. The church in Philippi, they were the only church that entered in the matter of giving and receiving. And out of that coined a phrase called a dignified interdependent relationship with those that you serve. I need you, you need me, right? Uh, none of us are the saviors, right? Particularly none of us are the white saviors. Like we don't, Jesus is the only one that saves. I can't even save myself. I got too much stuff going on in me internally to be the savior. And so um, it wrote, he wrote Dignity Serves. I went through Dignity Serves, had a deep impact on me um, because I uh, realized Don, the Christian author, Donald Miller has a quote that says, be careful of a white guy with a master's degree because he thinks he knows it all. And uh, that was me. And I was a white guy, had a master's degree, and I really thought I knew it all. And, uh, and I took Dignity Serves, and it just, again, revealed to me how culture had conditioned me to, to be in power, to be in control, to know it all. And I realized I didn't know it all. I needed to take a different posture with people that I was serving, people that were of a different economic status, people that are living on the streets. Um, and I remember clear as day, and, and 10 years ago, um, it was about this time, after I took Dignity Serves, I was hanging out at Compassion Corner, which was a, a ministry that was serving people that were homeless in downtown Orlando. And I, I just got done leading a Bible study. I was hanging out with people that were living on the streets. And I, and I looked at a guy and I says, hey, could you pray for me? And he looked at me. He's like, his eyes lit up. He's like, wait, you want me to pray for you? I'm like, yeah, I've got a lot going on in my life. <laughs> like, um, different than what you've got going on, but I still got stuff going on. And he's like, well, yeah, of course, I'd love to pray for you. Literally took out his notepad that he had, wrote my name down and wrote my prayer request. And then two weeks later when I saw him, he's like, hey, I'm in, I've been praying for you. I'm like, wow. Like, and so just that idea of honoring somebody's dignity. Um, John Perkins um, says, you don't give people dignity. They already have it. You just simply honor it. And so that aspect of giving and receiving was somebody that I thought, you know, I didn't have anything to give to me right? Um, just really woke something up in me. And so I began to live that out, began to really listen a lot more than I was talking, um, and began to Polis Institute, began to spend time at a uh, Palms Trailer Park in downtown Orlando, which was a huge place of distress, um, open sewage, violent yeah. crime, sex trafficking, all that stuff going on. I mean, stuff yeah. that you consider when you think of under-resourced communities, it was happening there. And uh, Polis was there for about five years working with the neighbors. And in five years, the whole neighborhood completely turned over because wow. they got money from the outside. Um, people remain in poverty because they lack capital, right? They lack access. And so, um, and so yeah, they, uh, um, yeah, the whole, I just saw that model work and I'm like, all right, I'm going to move to Atlanta um, to, to be a part of the church in the neighborhood, to be a part of the community development here but also to begin to kind of be a consultant to churches all around us, all around the city of Atlanta to share the message of dignity serves and calling the church to a dignified interdependent relationship with those that they serve. And so moved up here 10 years ago and uh, been, been in the city ever since living out reconciliation, living out the principles of dignity serves. Uh, I did a lot of youth development here in the community. Um, did a lot of connecting with churches and connecting with people in the, in the neighborhood um, for the first six or seven years that I was here. And um, then about five and, and then consulting with churches, with Dignity Serves um, and, and just really calling churches to that model. And then about five years ago, I hit a wall. Uh, I burned out. I uh, was doing a lot of work with young men in the community and uh, I just I hit a wall and uh, made some bad decisions based upon my own emotional wounds and my emotional needs and uh, just went back to counseling and <laughs> uh, seminaries when I first started to do counseling uh, to really deal with my inner world. Um, but I started going back to counseling and really began to heal. I began to read uh, a guy named Pete Scazzaro wrote a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which the whole premise is dealing with your iceberg. Uh, everybody has an iceberg um, and, and icebergs are what we don't stuff from our past, trauma that we don't uncover, things in our lives, our core lies we don't, that we don't deal with. And so I began to really deal with my core lie, with, with, with my iceberg, um, did a small group, led a small group of some guys working through the same stuff. And then a buddy in that small group uh, was a part of a, a nonprofit called Desire Street Ministries, which is here in Atlanta led by Danny Warfel, who was the old Florida Heisman quarterback, not old, he's the Florida Heisman quarterback. And um, they simply partner with under-resourced communities, nonprofits and under-resourced communities. And uh, my buddy invited me to come in and talk about the importance of emotional health 
in the work of reconciliation and justice because Desire Street did some research and they discovered that in, in year five, people that typically like me who move into under-resourced communities and are, are involved in leading nonprofits, uh, by year five, they typically burn out. And uh, they burn out because the work is hard, it's exhausting, you're giving, you're giving, you're giving, and you're, you're not receiving. And so um, developed a uh, resource on that, um, on the importance of emotional health and the work of reconciliation um, called Loving Freely, based on the Gospel of Mark, where um, Jesus's whole ministry begins with these words, you are my beloved child whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. And uh, we love others because God first loves us. And so we cannot give away what we do not receive. And so um, really developed that really for myself, but developed it for other friends, just to really pay attention to what's happening as you love and serve others. Don't give out of an empty tank. And so uh, I do that on, the, uh, on my other <laughs> part-time, uh, continuing to, I'm always developing that resource out. And then uh, about four years ago, uh, I met a guy named Josh Clemens, and <clears throat> he was starting a nonprofit called One Race. And they said that in um, August of 2018, they were going to do uh, uh, an event at Stone Mountain, which is here in Atlanta, which is a historically um, racist um, place. Um, back in 1915, the, um, a Methodist Episcopal uh, circuit pastor um, rallied the, the KKK. It was a reigniting the KKK in this area and, and, and burned a cross at the top of Stone Mountain and laid a Bible on the, I think it was on a flag, an American flag, and um, reigniting the KKK. And so 2018, one race called the Church um, of Atlanta, the Church of all the nation, to repentance, to deal with a system of racism. And so we gathered about 22,000 Christians came to this event for a day of prayer, of fasting, of speaking, of calling in the name of God and prayer. Um, and then uh, in 2019, we did another event at Ebenezer Baptist Church designed for, for leaders, for pastors. And then last year, Josh, actually, no, we're in 2021 now, are we? <laughs> 2019, we are. Yeah. Um, 2019, Josh Clemens and I began a conversation about what it would look like for me to come on staff as the director of groups and mobilization for one race. And so I'm tasked with the idea of building groups uh, all around the city of Atlanta of pastors and ministry leaders. Um, that can be geographically and regionally focused and, um, and then mobilize people into the work. And so the one race transformational journey is built around three steps. Um, know the story, own the story and change the story. Um, in order for us to become one race, we have to go through that, right? We have to know the story of race in our country. We have to know that in 1619, the first people were brought over as slaves. We have to know that the system of chattel slavery lasted for 254 years in our country until 1863, when the you know, Emancipation Procl Proclamation was finally signed. We have to know that that slavery never ended; it just morphed and it morphed into Jim Crow and it morphed into lynching and it morphed into all these other things. And in 1963, four, they finally signed the Civil Rights Act. We have to know that about 85% of our history of our country has been about oppression for people of color, particularly African-Americans. And we have to know this story. And then we have to own this story, right? We have to internalize this. And this is where really where the work of the Holy Spirit has to come into play, where someone has to say, God, I want to learn. And so um, particularly as white men, right? Like we, we've been the main benefactors of a country that was founded upon the sin of white supremacy. We just have to acknowledge that. We have to name that that not only does white privilege exist, of course it exists, like we benefit from it. Um, we don't need to feel shame, we don't need to feel guilt. As Christians, we are always called to the truth. We are always called to, I mean, I'm a, I'm a sinner. Man, I sin regularly, but I'm also created in the image of God <laughs> and, and I need Jesus. We are called to proclaim the truth of the gospel. We have to own this story. And then through the power of the gospel, we have to change the story. We have to understand this is God's heart. We always quote John 17. Jesus's last prayer with his disciples was what? He says, I'm not praying for you. I'm praying for the future church that they may be one. Why? So that the world may know that we are his disciples. And so um, I, uh, Josh and I worked hard last year writing content um, for, for these classes. We did a leadership cohort. 
Um, we uh, did a reconciliation. So we kind of divide our content into four different levels. We did a reconciliation one-on-one, um, just laying the biblical framework for reconciliation from the scriptures. Um, reconciliation 201 really dove into race, racism in the gospel. Reconciliation 301 will we'll dive into cultural identity. Uh, what does it mean to develop a healthy cultural identity, especially for those of us that come from the white culture? And then 401 will deal with let's change the story. And what does that mean? And so, and so yeah, I, um, that's my main role uh, as a director of groups and mobilization. Uh, also in charge of uh, developing blogs and also get the supreme honor of raising my own funds. And so I've been at it for 10 years. And so if there's anybody that's listening to this thing and they want to become a partner of ours, I'd love to talk. It all begins a relationship. So sorry, guys. I hope you don't mind if I plug that in there. No, it's all, it's all. All, it's all good. <laughs> I, I should I should mention that uh, we connected with you through Davis Burnett. And I believe Davis uh, is active Hold against me. Don't hold that against me. Please. Yeah. Well, he, he's in, a, he's in a small group and he talked at length about uh, how in 2017, he, he realized that the history he had been taught was, was very different than what reality was. Did Davis and, tell you how that whole thing started? Do we no, have, well, do we well yeah. Give us, give us your version of that. Oh, I mean, I was somehow, I don't know how I get, Oh yeah. I met Davis through, uh, I met with his pastor and, he just came to, to lunch with us and <clears throat> got to know him. And then we became Facebook friends. And then um, I think it was in 2017 or 16, I forget. I think it was 17. Yeah. 17. I just shared on Facebook that Lecrae's Lecrae's comment and say, you know, I'm done with white evangelicalism. He's like, I'm done with it. And Davis was like, what is white evangelicalism? I don't get that. And then that ended up a very long discussion, which was really good. It was a friendly discussion. And the end of it, I said, Hey guys, I know all of you. Um, would you guys want to grab coffee? And so they're like, yeah. So we grabbed coffee. And I think there was about seven or eight of us, diverse voices, all men. And a great conversation around race, around the gospel. And Davis was a part of that. And then that launched into a Be the Bridge group, which if those of you who are listening, if you don't know Latasha Morrison and her work, Be the Bridge, read the book, get involved. Phenomenal work, gospel-centered. Um, but yeah, we went through a Be The Bridge group, um, all men, first men's group that Be The Bridge ever went through. Um, Corrigan Brown and I co-led it, shout out to Corrigan, and uh, he, he lives here in Atlanta. And we dove deep into the racial history of our country. And, um, and so, and that's where, how I got to know Davis. Yeah, Davis told a powerful story, uh, being from Central California, and then becoming a police officer in Alabama. Uh, he had a, a unique perspective uh, on what it's like to police in, in Alabama. So I, I read a few of your uh, blog posts, Dan, and uh, the one that piqued my curiosity the most, I'd love to get your uh, description of this, is your whiteness is kicking in. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you, I, I've never uh, been uh, described, me being a white male, and I'm sure I, my whiteness has been on display countless times in my life, but nobody's ever told me yeah. And my whiteness is kicking in. What, what nobody, is that? Nobody ever told me until Arthur told me. And so <laughs> um, we have to understand what it means to be white men and to be operating in whiteness. There's two different things, right? Um, we are, we can't ignore who we are, but we have to understand what culture has given us. We have to understand the creation of whiteness. Um, in 1667, during Bacon's rebellion was the first glimpse in America where we see whiteness manifest itself. And what happened in 1667 was that in Northern Virginia, actually in your area, yeah. um, uh, there was a rebellion where poor whites and poor blacks came together to rebel against rich white slave owners. And they were rebelling, and they, ironically, they were actually rebelling over native lands. They were arguing about what to do with native lands. And these rich white slave owners, rich white landowners said, oh shoot, if we don't do something, they're gonna overrun us. And so what they did, they actually gave poor white people a little bit more power than poor black people. Mm. And then and then we see chattel slavery kind of taking over um, the rest of the U.S. history. And so that was the first manifestation of whiteness until they didn't really see the glimpse. And so we got to understand what whiteness is. Whiteness is comes from white culture and, and it's created by white culture. Like we we have to understand that we have a culture and it's white right and white um a really good book um that i'll pull out for you right now is uh i was actually on a call with them today daniel hill a book called white awake 
which really examines, he's a white pastor in Chicago, basically discovers what does it mean to be white. And so, yeah, so your whiteness is kicking in. Like we have to understand what it means to be white. We have to understand that whenever white culture interacts with other cultures, we typically always win, right? We come from the dominant culture. We can have our way. It's just the way things work, right? And so um, it's like, it's like a fish in a, in a, in a, in a, it's like a fish in water, right? A fish doesn't understand that it's in water. It just, it is what it is, right? But I really believe in one of the trainings I did for one race is that in the scriptures, you see different elements of being born again in Christ, three different elements of, of growth in Christ. The first one is you are justified, justified by faith, right? We don't, we don't save ourselves. God saves us. We confess our sins to him. Um, and then the second stage is sanctification, right? We, we grow in Christ. We discover that there's a true self in us that God has placed us in. We don't live from other people's expectations. We live from the voice of God. And then the third phase, and you see this particularly in the book of Acts, you see this in Peter's journey, is this idea of being born out of our culture, right? Seeing how culture shapes us. Um, there's certain things that being a part of white culture that shapes us, that if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, of the way of Jesus, um, white culture is a culture. It's a thing, right? It's sometimes good, it's sometimes bad. It has done really good things, but it's also done really, really, really bad things, particularly for people of color. And so we have to acknowledge that, um, that in Acts 10, um, Peter is at Cornelius's house and God gives him a vision, right? What's the vision? You've seen that these Gentiles, you've considered them unclean. Well, guess what? Because of what I'm doing, they are now clean. Don't consider um, what you've considered unclean, what I've made clean. And so it talks about basically Gentiles are a part of the covenant now, which to the Jews, right? They're just like, this is mind blowing. The covenant with God was only meant for the Jewish people. And so in Acts 15, we see, you know, what do you do with ceremonial? What do you do with what to eat, what not to eat? with Jewish, um, sorry, with Gentile inclusion. And then in Galatians 2, something really, really interesting happens is that um, the main argument that Paul's making in Galatians 2 is we are saved by faith, right? Not by the works of the law, but by faith. But then he comes in Galatians 2, Peter is in Antioch, and Peter begins to withdraw from eating with the Gentile believers, right? And Paul opposes him to his face. And what's the key phrase that Paul uses? When I saw him not acting in line with the gospel, right? That is part of like, you are not acting in line with, with the freedom that we have now in Christ, freedom away from these laws. And, and so what Paul, I would argue, what Paul is doing in Peter there is he is pointing out his cultural blind spots. He says, you are still acting in the Jewish way of thinking. And this is not in line with the gospel. And so when we act out of our white culture, and that's all we see, we're not fully acting in, in the ways of Jesus. We're not learning to receive how other people see reality. And so that blog came out of it. I mean, part of the story came from a close friend of mine, Arthur Breland, who he's a good friend of one race. Arthur is African-American, grew up in Texas, and um, I think grew up outside of Dallas, Texas. And um, I think about three years ago, uh, Arthur's church, uh, Arthur, who's African-American, young African-American pastor, um, his church sat on Confederate Avenue in Atlanta, Georgia. And so <laughs> Arthur began to work with the city to change the name of Confederate Avenue to United Avenue. And so, of course, Arthur, who's black, he doesn't want to pastor a church on Confederate Avenue. Like, this. why? That's ridiculous. So the city changed it to United Avenue, whose church is now called United Church. And one race worked with him. Um, we, did a, we did a march down United Avenue. And it was a sweet time. About 400 people showed up. And we marched down United Avenue just celebrating what God was doing. The Sunday before that, um, Arthur wanted me to come in and invite people to that march and so we went to four different churches around the city four different people churches that he knew and um, we met at arthur's church at nine o'clock in the morning i hop in with arthur and arthur comes from the kind of pentecostal charismatic slant and arthur's got his worship music going he's he's already in the spirit and i hop in the car we were on our way to the first church and i said arthur I, arthur what, uh, what do you want of me? What are you expecting of me? And that's when Arthur says to me, he says, Dan, your whiteness is kicking in. 
what? So what does that mean? And so what he meant was like within white culture, everything has to be linear, right? Everything has to make sense. Everything has to be logical. Everything has to fit systematic theology, right? That idea of systematic theology comes out of out of Europe, right? It comes out of white Western thinking. And so what he was saying to me, he says, Dan, let's just rely upon God. Let's just rely upon the Holy Spirit and his work. Just let go of your need to be in control, to have things figured out. And I did. And we went and visited four different churches and it was amazing. Holy Spirit did some work. And so that's what he means by your whiteness is kicking in. We have to understand what it means to be white. <laughs> do, do you feel like uh, your whiteness kicks in less now after that experience? 100%. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the growth in Christ. I think God is, I think this is the work of the Holy Spirit, right? Like you have to recognize how culture has conditioned us um, and, and to see things in a certain way. And um, so, yeah. So uh, what do you think it's like in Atlanta? Well, go ahead, Daniel. looks like you're about to say something. Oh yeah. I, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, one race's, sort of the 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 name of it is kind of like the end goal is that fair to say like to to have everyone kind of be under that one umbrella we're all a human race um but at the same time like a very important component of that is recognizing the differences in in our in our cultures and the way that we've been treated and treated each other yeah um and i wonder is there i guess there's there a point at which the focus shifts from like we need to really dig into our history and our differences and our cultural differences. And, and then uh, shifting from that to a, how do we uh, identify more, instead of it being a white culture or a different culture, it's like we all identify under kind of a, a, the same culture or we have this common ground that we all identify. Yeah, with yeah, yeah. Well, yeah? I think, I think this is the goal is revelation seven. Um, we're God's taking creation somewhere in Revelation 7. It says that we will be around the throne, every tribe, every tongue worshiping, right? Doesn't say just white people, doesn't say just black, brown, red, whatever it is. It says every tribe, every tongue will be worshiping. That's where we're headed. And so I believe as Christians, we're called to live into that reality here and now. Jesus's prayer is, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. And so, yes, of course, um, God wants us to to be a part of, of, of one race, but but what does that mean? And how do we actually do that? And and how do we, especially the church? I'm a part of a connection to a group called Mosaics Network, which is all about helping build multi-ethnic churches um, and doing it well and doing it healthy. But it's hard because white culture uh, we don't want to give up power. Uh, one of my favorite um, authors and kind of becoming a mentor now is Dr. Corey Edwards, her work at Ohio State. She's a sociologist and she's been researching the the Maltanthic church movement for the last 15 years. And she wrote a book called The Elusive Dream. And basically she's pointing out that when churches try to become multi-ethnic, multi-racial, they still become culturally white. Is that when people of color come to these churches, they're expected to assimilate into white culture. And you see this happen again and again and again, uh, is that people can't bring them their full selves to the to the picture because you're dealing with power dynamics. Right. Well, things start at 10 o'clock. Right. Um, Well, you know, there's 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 a difference in white cultures. We're very time oriented. Right. (laughs) Versus other communities. uh, They're very event oriented. And so um, that's one of the trainings I did with Be the Bridge with Corrigan is Corrigan is like. When he became a part of a majority white church, Corrigan's African-American, he one of the stories he shared was um, he invited some people from his church to over to a barbecue. And uh, they said, well, what time should you show up? He said, yeah, I'll show up around three. Well, Corrigan's doesn't even start gathering groceries till three. And, you know, typically going to kick off around five, five thirty, six o'clock. Well, at three o'clock, his white friends, they're there. And Corrigan's like, whoa, like, what's going on? Like... <laughs> You know, if you say three, you know, two or three hours later, but we in the white majority culture, like you say, you know, three o'clock, we're, you know, at 315, we're sweating, right? Where are they? You know, are they, are they okay? Are they in an accident? Like, and so we have to understand that, you know, culture is what it is. Like, there's no, and I think the white majority culture thinks that they're it, right? They think that the kingdom has come. Um, and, and this is a lot of the work and we're seeing this play out now. I mean, not to talk about yesterday, but like, 
um, America, especially within the church, there's been such an intermixing between, between white Christian nationalism and, and seeing America as this special nation, as almost this new Israel, this new Jerusalem. And, um, and so we're not like God's kingdom is bigger than America. And, um, and the church has involved itself in, you know, seeing think, somehow thinking that America is somehow exceptional. Uh, no, if you know church history, or if you know history, America is like every other nation. It's going to be around and do its thing, and then it's going to begin to divide. And I think you're seeing that division, and, and, but yet the kingdom of God is going to continue. And I think you're seeing that now. Like the, the church in America is going to be different. Um, and and uh, it's going to be more black and brown than, than white. And you're seeing that. You're seeing this transition happen. So, yeah. When, and the phrase church in America, uh, to me, it's just it's such a big, broad uh, group of, of, of people. I mean, there's like the Catholics and the Evangelicals and the Baptists and the Methodists and the Protestants. And the and then I think I, w- I would say maybe one race slash your views seem like you might be in the minority uh, as far as Christianity goes. At least yeah. it seems like the common association is if you're Christian, you're conservative yeah. and you don't talk about white privilege. You don't talk about uh a lot of the stuff that you've been talking about so yeah well, how's, I, how's it been i'm definitely occupying? in the minority i don't really know i don't know got a whole lot of friends and we don't really know where we fit politically we don't fit with republicans or democrats so i uh, one race we we work heavily with a group called the and campaign led by justin gibney uh, which is all about calling the church to biblical justice you know um and so but anyway what would your question yeah well, I, I wanted to ask, like, how it's been just occupying that kind of minority position and, and also, you know, being in Atlanta, um, you know, how has it been trying to, from church to church, have you met resistance from different kinds of churches as opposed, like, from one to the next? Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah. You know, the older, no, I'm not going to, I'll just say it. older established white churches really want nothing to do with us right (laughs) they're not it's it's scary it's completely different than anything they've ever understood it's really scary um and then you got you know some skeptical black churches which they're like where y'all where y'all been this whole time (laughs) we've been dealing with white supremacist terrorists for 400 years this ain't nothing new to us like you know let's get to reparations (laughs) you know so yeah are are there are there any uh churches in atlanta or otherwise that I've come close to this notion of assimilating in a way that is uh, responsive and respectful of the other yeah. group. Yeah, I've got some buddies that pastor from authentic churches. Um, one is uh, Will Gravely's church at um, Refuge Church, which is in Austell. Um, uh, a couple other buddies here in the city. Um, yeah, but it's it's uh, it's it's really hard. It's really hard. How 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 they do it? Uh, how do they do it? Yeah. We got to talk to them. Um, they, From your perspective, how do you think they did really, it? Really, you have to be very intentional and you have to constantly recognize the power dynamics. You have to be very intentional about who has the power, who has the say, which culture is bringing it to the to the point. You got to, um, you've, uh, geez, yeah. Um, Come to the community church. There's another church here in Atlanta that that is doing it. Um, you have to to give people of color power. Right. You have to let them be them full, their full true selves and who they are. Right. And not expect them to assimilate. And um, you got to listen a lot. <laughs> you got to submit yeah. to one another out of reverence for Christ. Um, and so, yeah. But it can be done. So there, there are examples that where it's uh, being successful and the place isn't uh, like cats and dogs can live together. Is what yeah, we're saying. I mean, it's. But this is, but the book of Acts is a record of this. Like the early church was dealing with all of this stuff. And, and so it's not, it's nothing, nothing new that the church isn't dealt with. So, and the, so the, the, is it like the cats and dogs live together or is it like everybody is like a, everyone is a dog, but then you have different types of dogs that can live together or like, where do you draw that line? Uh, sort of, is it all like different species, but all under the, the umbrella of, of the church? You know, yeah, I don't, like, I don't know. I don't know. How, I don't know how to answer that question. Yeah, <laughs> that's a weird we, analogy. That was my fault. I said cats and dogs. I think we find, I think we find commonality in Christ, and we find um, commonality in, in what we find together, right? Um, 
we are not divided by worship styles, by church music, by what time the church starts, by how long the church goes for, like all of these sort of things, like white churches, you're in and out in about an hour, hour and a half, you know, in the black church, hour two, you're just getting started, right? And so how do you, how do you deal with those different things and the Hispanic and the Latino churches and all these other church expressions? And so, no, it can yeah. be done. You just have to be very intentional about about doing it and um there's a there's a there's a a white church in duluth that duluth is about 45 minutes outside the city that it was a it was an older white established southern baptist church and their whole neighborhood started to change and um as a lot of white people do they they left and um and uh they were like well do we sell the church and the pastor's like no like we're going to be like the community heck we're going to be we're going to be neighbors and so uh, go figure um love god love your neighbor as yourself seems like a jewish rabbi i was talking about that and um yeah but and so you know of course you you hire people that look like the culture you want to be a part of right like there has to be representation but you don't hire people just as tokens, right? You hire people to be them full. They're being their full true self, the way God's created them to be. So, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I used to live in, uh, in Cairo and we went to this church. Um, we went on Fridays cause Friday was sort of like the, the holy day. Uh, yeah. and the country is like 80% Muslim. So the church was like, we'll just do it on the same day that, that they do it. And, it's kind of like, like you said, it's, there's an hour and a half in the morning, um, very neat, very scheduled. You know, we have three songs of worship and then we have the sermon and then we have a few songs and then everybody goes home. Mm-hmm. And then what would happen after that? I think it would start at noon. It was called Africa live. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was, it was all outdoor into the same tent, uh, same setup, same stage, but, uh, it would be full. So, so the first service would be full of, of white people, international people. I, I, I would just say non-African people. And then the second service would be full of, of African people. And it was, uh, you know, a lot of them just never even sat down. It was, it, it was probably more than half just like worship music, praying. Um, uh, and I remember, you know, I had I, been to a couple of them because they were right. You know, one happened right after the other. And uh it's a it's a funny illustration of that of that difference you're talking about and and i don't think that we kind of i don't think we looked at africa live uh with any kind of it, it was it was i would maybe describe it as like a distant kind of respect admiration and friendship um and i and i imagine it was probably the same way in the other direction uh there there wasn't a whole lot of like hey let's try to combine these two services mm. you know one that's extremely neat and then one that's like just very given to whatever is moved by the spirit. Um, yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, Dan, what's one race up to these days? Yeah. So we're just planning out this year. Uh, we're going to focus heavily on developing groups. Um, all the We have this crazy vision of for 2021, 22, developing a thousand groups all around the nation. And so developing that into curriculum and, and, and launching those things. And so, yeah, we're literally praying into this next year and what God would have us to do. And so, yeah. Well, yes. I, I wish you a ton, ton of luck. I'm going to pivot uh, awkwardly here. I know you're, you, you like basketball. I knew, I know you did as a kid anyway. Mm-hmm. Does that carry into you today? Do you still? Somewhat. somewhat. I don't play a huge amount. I've sprained my ankles too many times that I, I don't want to, I'm 43 years old. So I'd rather go jogging or swimming or something like that, but I'll, I'll get out and play a little bit. Do you follow basketball? Like, do you have a favorite yeah. college? Team? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I like Duke, but I don't think they, they've, oh. they've been struggling the last few years with Coach K. So, I I, uh, I enjoy it when Duke struggles. I am uh, you a Tar Heel fan. You would think I was, given what I just said, but I'm a uh, University of Virginia fan. Oh, nice. Yeah, got, and we, we team. Yeah, we, well, I mean, I, thanks to the pandemic, we've uh, held the national title for almost two years now. <laughs> <laughs> otherwise there's no way that would be true yeah it's uh yeah i didn't i never thought i would live to see uh uva win but yeah coach k is struggling and i have to say i kind of like it yes i mean i don't he should probably retire and and let let the next generation 
try to take them over. So I, I think that's uh, that's right. So, Dan, you uh, talked about your wife a bit. You talked about your oldest son at one point in your your journey. Tell us about your family today. Yeah, so married to Adrian for 16 years, October 16th. Um, we have four kids. Landon's 13. Karis is 10. And we have twins that are eight years old. So, oh, wow. Then we have two oh. dogs, two dogs, two fish, and two hamsters, which I'm pulling hard to get rid of the hamsters. So you can pray for me. Are, are, are you building an ark, Dan? <laughs> you would think. My <laughs> wife and kids love, love pets. And I'm like, yo, I grew up on a farm. I grew up on enough animals. Um, the way you treat dogs is a little bit different than the way we treated dogs. Dogs, you know, they were outside and they went out in the woods and brought home deer legs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very different than a domesticated dog. Oh, no question. Yes, yes. Hey, so yeah. uh, Dan, as we wrap up, what's uh, a couple of things you would want our audience to take away from this entire conversation, especially oriented on the, the notion of what One Race's mission yeah. is and what you're trying to do? Just what One Race invites people to. The transformational journey is always about know the story, right? So dig into these books. Um, if anybody's interested, just shoot me an email. I'll shoot you a whole resource list that One Race um, we put together around know, own, and change the story. Um, read Latasha Morrison's book, Be the Bridge. Um, if you get into that, you'll start, that'll open up to a lot, a whole world of other books as well. And so, yeah, just, um, have humility, um, know God's up to something. And whenever I do these things, I always want to extend, if anybody doesn't know Jesus personally, um, and God's work of reconciling all things, I'm, I'm an evangelist at heart. That's why I do this work. Um, love just shoot me an email or I'm on Facebook at Dan Crane and, um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, awesome, Dan. We really appreciate you joining us, uh, sharing your story. And I am, I, I wish one race and you all the luck in the world. What you're doing is very important work. And uh, I, I think that, that if you're trying to be inclusive and listen to people that are different than you, you can't be wrong. 100%. Yeah. Yep. Thank you, Dan. Uh, it, was, it was awesome hearing everything that you had to say. And, and one small thing that I especially appreciate is bringing up the, the fact that you, you do counseling and you have done. I think it's, it's cool that you are free and open with that uh, because I think it's something that a lot of people might not be. So thank you. We all need help. Ain't nobody got it figured out. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.